This lamp actually means a lot to me. I got it over oh, 10 years ago on a trip to Beirut, to Lebanon. And it wasn't my intention to go to Beirut to buy lamps, but I was there on a, uh, visiting some friends that were doing a lot of work in the way of social entrepreneurial support of businesses that were trying to do things that are redemptive. And if you know a little bit about Beirut, you know it's, it's been the center of conflict and war, civil war and unrest for decades. If you, when I was there, and I think the same is true today, if you, you can see a lot of modern development, a lot of buildings that would look the same in any kind of downtown area, but you also see a lot of bombed out buildings. And you see some memorials to the conflicts that were there. There's a building that's completely gutted and it is right at the apex of a variety of different streets that were, or boulevards that were really the border of the famous Green Line or infamous Green Line. And it was literally a sniper's paradise or a sniper's alley. And it was, it, they've left it there as a testimony to the challenges that that land has faced. And not just bef you know, at the Civil War, but even before that. That really is its history. And so this lamp was made by a man named Omar who had been in the Lebanese army he had been a blacksmith before then, but through a, a war wound that had some complications, he became wheelchair-bound. But he took his skills and he turned them into being a master craftsman. And his skills took this wrought iron display that you see here, which might convey to you a certain French architecture, and if that's what you were thinking, you'd be right. You know, at one point, Beirut was known as the Paris of the Middle East. And, and it has a lot of French architecture, but had been, a lot of it had been destroyed or torn down or blown apart. And so he took some of that and he fashioned it to a base. The patina is from all those decades ago in whatever conflicts. They got a damask cloth to cover the shade. And this, it's only two feet high, but it is both lovely and very effective. Omar teamed up with, with a woman named Bernadette who had come from France, she had been, I think, in the consumer business and was able to grow businesses and understand. And the two of them paired up to build a whole host of, a line of housewares, if you will, out of this challenge and this tragedy. Both his personal world, the conflicts that were represented, Damascloth, cloth, of course, is in Syria, which has been a troublesome neighbor for some time. There's so many layers of of challenge and issue that go into this. But they name this line, the unseen beauty of the broken. By itself, each of these elements was, would be unremarkable. What would you notice about a whole stack of wrought iron? What would you notice about bolts of damask cloth? What would you see about a base that is just narrow and small? What would you know about the craftsman who made it? Or the woman who said, you know, I think this can be a business. All of these separate items came together to be the unseen beauty of the broken. Now, I love that name. Uh, I love the lamp. I love the, the way that God uses things that are broken. And he uses them to create beauty. I, I think that's what we see in this, in our Isaiah text in particular. 
Isaiah, the way it introduces the Lord, it says that he's really unremarkable. He's, he's, un, he's kind of unseen. It says this, See, my servant has acted wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there are many who were appalled at him, but he said, but and that that's sort of later, but he just says he grew up as a green shoot. There wasn't any beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was ordinary. He was unremarkable as a servant. But the beauty that came came from the conflict and the challenge that he underwent. It came from the suffering that he would undergo for us. That suffering looks like this. He was despised and rejected. He became a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have left God's path to follow our own. You have this... You know, this is Isaiah prophesying seven centuries before Christ would come. And he's talking about this, this servant who would be unremarkable. He would be ordinary. People wouldn't really know who he was or what, what his significance is. And so Isaiah is calling that out. He is unseen. But then he becomes broken. And so that we can see him who he is truly always meant to be and who we truly need. So I want to explore that a little bit in our time together. The first idea is that Jesus, Jesus the unseen. Do, do we really see Christ in the way that, that Scripture unfolds him? Part of the, the joy but also the challenge of Holy Week is it gives us this, this renewed opportunity to say, Lord, am I seeing you aright? Or am I, am I failing to see who you are? I love the text that we read two gospel passages. Of course, when we were out there before the procession of the palms, we read the one where Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, the traditional Palm Sunday text. And then Cindy just read the gospel reading, which is Jesus before Pilate. They serve as really good bookends for what we're talking about, Jesus the unseen. His disciples are saying, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's the one who's been doing the miracles. They see him as the Messiah that they would be familiar with, the Messiah who would come and he would finally put to rights all the things that had been wrong. He would kick out the Romans. He'd restore proper worship in the temple. Those that were sort of in the, the religious leaders' racket where they were devouring widows' houses and doing, using a lot of religious laws to actually feather their own nest, those things would be put to rights. They were excited about this about Jesus because they'd been with him, seeing him feed 5,000 people and then 4,000, raising a, a young man from the dead, restoring him to his mother, seeing people having demons cast out of them, healing the sick. And now he's coming into Jerusalem. It, it is, is a pregnant moment in the history of those with messianic expectations. Like, finally, now it's going to happen. It's like if you ever, you know, if you're watching a Super Bowl and you actually had a team you were interested in seeing win, you'd be ready to see this. I mean, like, I can't wait for it to start. Here's the contest. Here we go. This is what the disciples are doing. They're, they have that, that sense of expectation, of imminent victory. 
And so they're laying branches down. But we know that they actually don't know the Messiah that they're worshiping at this point. They don't know. They think it's just going to keep going. You know, these hosannas that they are saying are just going to get louder and louder and more and more people are going to join in. But that's not what you read. By the time we get to the second gospel reading, there's no more hosannas. Jesus is now in a trial for what will become his life. So the disciples don't fully understand the Jesus that they are worshiping. Don't want to blame them. You know, this has to unfold. But neither does Pilate. We're told about Pilate in the text. He is one who sees Jesus at a minimum as a problem. Yet another troublesome Jewish Messiah guy. Oh my goodness, how many of these guys do I have to deal with? Well, before Jesus there were some. Jesus was one and after them. More people. These are, this was kind of stock and trade for Romans. And so Jesus is, a, is an issue. It's a problem. And he tries to find the Lord innocent because he's, he's you know, Roman law was, was meant to be just. And he says, I, I, three times, he says, I don't find anything wrong with this man. It's significant, of course, that Luke records that three times because he wants us to know that Jesus was, in fact, innocent of every charge that was thrown against him. But Pilate doesn't see Jesus. Jesus remains unseen to Pilate. Jesus remains unseen to Herod, who just wants some amusement. He's heard about Jesus. It's like, oh, this is so great. What an opportunity. Bring my pals in. Put on a show, Jesus. Do something. Do some of these wonders and signs I've been hearing so much about. Jesus does what? He does nothing. He says nothing. And so finally, Herod's court mocks him. His soldiers mock him. They put a robe on him. They send him back to Pilate. Pilate and Herod become friends. Not sure how long that lasted, but it said they became friends that day. The rulers, the teachers of the law, they see Jesus not in his amusement, not as a problem, but really as a threat. Because they know Jesus has come, that, and they can't explain all these signs and wonders. And he says, you know, they, are you from God? Well, tell me, where was the baptism of John from? We got to get back to you on that. Why? Because they know if, if, they, if, <laughs> if they say what is actually true, they're in trouble, that the true Messiah has come. So Jesus remains somewhat unseen by each of these groups. And I think to some extent he remains unseen by us in certain ways. Do we, do we see him as one who goes ahead of us in the situations that we're facing? Do we see him as one who truly brings about truth in, this, in the things that concern us? Can we understand what that would mean in any of the areas of life or what's going on in our world that we're concerned about? I, I wonder to what extent Jesus remains unseen in our lives. As I was thinking about this and praying about it, I, you know, my, my pastor's heart got greatly, I don't know, touched, challenged. I, I continue to read about the whole phenomenon amongst, particularly in the American church, but I think it's true in the West, this whole idea of deconstruction. Deconstruction is the idea that the Jesus that I grew up with is not necessarily the Jesus I believe in. The reason that I don't, you know, I'm not, this is not autobiographical, this is what people are saying. This is like, well, because... I can't, I, the, the, the Christ I understood 
and was taught. I, I don't know how he, how he doesn't impact, how come there's not as much love in my church, or much compassion for other people? I don't know what Christ thinks about the issues that are concerning my friends or me. What, what's going on in the world around us? What's going around on, along politically? What's going along from going around? From a health perspective, what do we do about the, the questions that are seemingly the big questions of this day? How does Christ fit into those things? Does he have a thought about those? Does he have concern for those people that are on the margins of whatever those issues are? And when, if we're raised in a, an environment or our environment has been primarily individually focused and I'm focused on the Lord as my Savior and I want to be with him, and I don't hear other things about how he operates in the world and how much he loves people and how much his truth means and how much his resurrection truly brings power to each of these things. I'm like, I don't know what to do with that. And so some people have walked away from the faith that they grew up with, seeing it as inadequate, seeing it as incapable of answering some of these questions. But I want to say, first of all, that we as, as believers, we need to be asking good questions like, Lord, whatever situation that I am facing, concerns that I have, whatever's out there, what, equality, equity, climate picket, um, how to be compassionate to the, to the foreign, how to be wise steward of the resources we've been given, how to, um, I mean, th there's any number of things that rightly concern us. But if we're not following Christ, if he remains unseen to us in those issues, then I want to just lovingly kind of call people back to, to walking with him, to saying the Lord has answers and ways for us to operate in each of those situations. He hasn't abandoned us. He's not inadequate. He's not stumped. He's not like, I don't know what to do either. He very much has a hope and a future for how we as his followers, we as people who love him, can be his people of truth, compassion, um, focus, heart. I mean, there's, I'm just thinking of all the ways that we can be alongside of people that are really hurting for a lot of different reasons. Deciding that, that the Lord is inadequate isn't the way because the Lord has created all things and he is above all things and in him all things move and have their being. And so if we're drifting away from that, then I just want to call lovingly, call back to, to the only source of, of what can really resolve whatever tension or hurt people may be feeling. But to let that go uh, and to decide that the Lord isn't going to do what you think wouldn't be a good, wouldn't be the right way to go forward. To decide that Scripture doesn't speak to these issues wouldn't be a right way to go forward. To decide that somehow church tradition is now facing something that's been unprecedented and doesn't have an answer would be not the right way to go forward. We've been given such a treasury in our position in Christ, such wisdom through His Word, such... Um, opportunity through the fellowship of one another. And a lot of this stuff needs to be talked about, processed, worked out, discussed, prayed through. These aren't necessarily easy issues. These aren't necessarily quick issues. These aren't necessarily 
ones that have, uh, you know, where you're always going to get unanimity on a, on a question. But I don't want us to abandon the Lord to somehow think that He's not in it, He's not loving of us, He's not caring about what we care about. He provides us His Spirit, He provides us His instruction and His wisdom, and He provides us with fellowship to help us think through together and to support one another. So Jesus can be unseen to us in certain ways. Jesus is unseen to many people, and my heart breaks for that. But Jesus is also broken. I am amazed at the graphic nature of Isaiah 53. If you've been watching any of the tragedy that's been unfolding in Ukraine, on the news now, almost without failure, it says, warning, graphic content. We could put that up in this passage. Warning, graphic content. We didn't even know, we couldn't even recognize him. He was so badly beaten, pierced for our rebellion, whipped so that we could be healed. Jesus is broken for us. There's so much that gets expressed in, in that, I think. He's unseen, but he's broken. What, what makes him visible is the suffering he goes through for us. What makes him loved is the suffering that he did on our behalf. What makes us feel at times ashamed at the ways that we've disappointed him or the ways that we just, you know, we were just like these people. We turn our backs on him. And we've strayed away. We were like sheep. To realize what he went through to, that we wouldn't have to pay that penalty, that, that we could be called back into his loving embrace and his kindness and his wisdom, those things should cause us to rejoice. These are the things that allow us to follow him saying, honestly, Hosanna in the highest. But Jesus was broken for us. He's like this lamp. God takes something, you know, his beautiful body. He is fully God as well as fully human. And he allows it to go through this horrible scourge, scourge and great suffering. And yet, even in the midst of his agony, his greatest agony on the cross, Jesus still is forgiving, offering repentance to the thieves and forgiving the one who repents. That's astounding. So Jesus is the broken, but he's the one we need to have broken for us. But just as God took Jesus and allowed him to be broken for our sins, that we could be made whole by his stripes, so he takes whatever our version of that lamp is, the things in our life that have been hurtful, harmful, challenging, a mystery, like, Lord, why did that even happen? I don't understand why that's happening to me. Um, difficult, prolonged, chronic. He takes all that. And he says, you know what? I'm making something special. I'm making something unique. I'm taking those things that you would prefer not to look at or deal with, and I'm fashioning something special out of that. There is an unseen beauty to each of our areas of brokenness that only comes out as we allow the Lord to shape us and fashion us. So he takes the things of our sorrows and our hurts in life, and he allows that to make us people of greater compassion. He would take the talents and efforts that he gives us 
And it allows us to create and build things that are going to be a blessing to other people and a glory to him. He takes the ways that we know that we have been forgiven and he allows us to give that forgiveness to somebody else so that they would be restored as we've been restored. Our sufferings, deprivations, woundedness, sins, redemption, scars, concerns, fashioning them into a unique work. When I was, um, I was thinking about this. Okay, well, how would that apply to me? Well, if you were growing up in my household, um, my dad was, he was both, in, he was, God used him in, in the good side of his world and in the challenging side. On the good side, my dad was a great encourager. He'd always say, I mean, it wasn't ridiculously, you know, it wasn't untethered to fact. But if he found something, you know, you're doing well, you're like, yeah, that was good, that was a good job, et cetera, so that's great. Um, to this day, I think Barnabas is one of my favorite followers of Christ, the son of encouragement. You know, Barnabas isn't even his real name. That's his nickname. That's how encouraging he was. So, I love that. Who, who doesn't need more encouragement? Like, anybody had too much encouragement for this week? Like, okay, stop it. Stop encouraging me. No, encouragement is something we need, and my dad modeled that for, for us. I, I think I'm a pretty big encourager. That's a huge thing for me. So, I'm, I'm thankful for that. But my dad also modeled a certain volatility. That's kind of putting it charitably in places. Uh, it got to a point where he and my mom, I think I've shared this in the, in the past, where they separated for a year, their marriage. My mom said, you got to kind of get, get your act together because your volatility, your drinking isn't helping your family, not helping me, uh, not helping your kids. I happen to be the oldest. And so early on, I learned how to be somewhat of a peacemaker. You know, sort of the dysfunctions that grow up in a situation like that. It's like, oh, mom and dad are, yeah, I can see this thing brewing up. So how do I, how do I make peace in this? I became really good at it. I became hyper vigilant. Like, you know, I wasn't just like a radar that could see out 10 miles. I was like a radar that could see out 100 miles. I knew stuff that was coming before it really hit. To this day, I, peacemaking is still something that is important to me. Peacemaking is something that I think our world and our relationships have too little of. I try to do it wherever I can. Um, and so I'm thankful for that. that. But that came out of a certain dysfunction. That came out of a certain place of pain. Quite honestly, I think I can overdo it. Some trouble with peacemakers is, you know, like, okay, there's a way around this. We've got to figure this out. We could, you know, sometimes you just got to flat out tell the truth about something. Like, this is broken until one of you gets sorted out. It's not happening. So I'm growing in that. But it, was, uh, it took a while to get there because that was such a place in my life that I felt was necessary and important. So God is taking those things, taking those, just those two examples from my life and the way I was raised, using them. I think I've seen that used in, in the ministries that he's given me over the years. I think he continues to do that. But I think he's taking those places of brokenness. And I've got others. We don't have time to cover them all. <laughs> Probably, yeah, that'd be at least a weekend seminar. But he's taking those things and he's redeeming them. The more he allows me to see who he is, the more I want to press into that. The more I see what he does with the brokenness that I give him, the more I can become more like that lamp that he is making. And so I just want to leave that as somewhat of an encouragement 
a challenge, all those things for who we are as a congregation, but who we are as individuals. As we look, move forward in, in more into Holy Week, it's like, Lord, I, what are the places that I'm not seeing you as you so want? You've revealed yourself. I just choose to look elsewhere. What's that for me? Um, Lord, where, where, where am I? Where am I broken that I just want to stay in my brokenness? I, I actually don't want to be healed. I just want to, like, figure it out on my own. I got, you know, it, it, the, the quicker we give ourselves over to the Lord for his gentle but, but real uh, redemption, the, the more, the faster, if you will, or the more... Uh, just the better, more effective will be our healing, will be our experience of who he is. And so that's, those are really the questions to leave with and to pray about. Where is it, Jesus, that we don't see you as you'd like us to today? Where is it that I'm still hanging on to some brokenness that I know you really want to heal and redeem so that I am more that work uh, of art that you've intended me to be? May he give us wisdom in these days ahead as we approach we continue in our journey with him into Jerusalem and into his death that we might share in his life. Amen. Thanks for being with us online in the sermon podcast. To find out more about Holy Trinity Silicon Valley, head to www.holytrinitysv.org.